this is our last week of our Genesis series. Pleasure to introduce uh, a good friend of Mosaics, a good friend of mine. Uh, I've been involved at Pillar Seminary. Eric is the president and founder. Super grateful for him. Let's give it up for Eric Smith. So, uh, fake story. There were two dudes standing at a bus stop. And then uh, a a third guy walked up and, and looked at one of the other guys and said... The Latin name for the common wood duck is Historionicus. 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 And the, the dude who was addressed was like, you know, just looked like that was no big deal. The other guy was like, what on earth just happened? Bus stops really are where the weirdos gather. You know, he was, he was trying to figure this out. And, and as he was thinking it through, he's like, wow, that, that guy was just nuts, right? And that would make sense. If you were standing at a bus stop, some dude walked up and started talking about the Latin name of the common wood duck, you'd be like, something ain't right, you know? And then you sort of construct a story or build a a, a fact set or a truth set in your mind based on the fact that this dude is nuts, okay? But here's the thing. If it turns out that those two guys were actually spies... And, and, and this is in a spy movie. And the code for we're going to move forward with the plan was to say the Latin name of the common wood duck is Historionicus. And then to say Historionicus three times means we're moving forward with the plan. But if he had only said Historionicus one time, then it was code for we're ditching the plan. And so, all of a sudden, if you're watching this scene in a spy movie, now you're like, whoa, these guys are cool. They must be up to something awesome. And that guy who's talking about the Latin name of a wood duck, I want to know him, because he's got to have amazing stories to tell about spy stuff, right? You, you get what I'm saying? And, and the, the thing is that you have this little, this little scene in a story where a guy talks about the Latin name of the common wood duck, and unless you know some of the bigger story, you're almost guaranteed to walk away with the, wrong, with the wrong interpretation of what just happened. And I think that this is what happens in our journey walking with God. That things occur in our own story, in our own life, in our communities, in our families, in our nation, or whatever it is. And we don't have the broader story that we can plug these little events into to make sense of what's going on. Uh, What I want to try and do this morning is give you a little bit of the broader story. Because I think, I think that what, I'm going to sound cheesy for a second, that as I was praying this week about where to kind of focus or land uh, in this last sermon with you. Um, The thing that just was really impressed on my heart is this walk with God. Walk with God. Walk with God. So if I can do anything this morning, it's, it's hopefully I can inspire you in your walk with the Lord. But we've got to get, we've got to get some story because our Our stuff will not make sense without a little bit of the bigger story. So if you start in Genesis 1, which we did a couple weeks ago, right? You have a good God creating a good world. And it's it's a very good place in which to be. And people are together. And there's really good relationship with people one to another, and there's really good relationship between God and people. Genesis 1 addresses a couple of things. It addresses the fact that God is actually capable, because if all we had to look at were, were the circumstances of our world, we might think that God is actually a bumbling idiot. And the other thing that we need Genesis 1 for is it, is it it sort of affirms this deep sense that we have that things are not as they should be. We have this yearning or this longing or this sense that says the world is broken. 
And so Genesis 1 shows you a very capable and a very good God because only a good God creates a good world. Genesis 2 sort of zooms in the camera to focus on uh, the creation of people. And then you roll into Genesis 3 and you get a story where people decide to go their own way. The image in Genesis 2 is that people are innocent. And in, in the Bible, innocence is defined as reliance upon God. Faith that God knows best. And that his way is good. That's how innocence is defined in Genesis. And what you get is a deception where the people are led to believe that their own acquisition of the knowledge of of good and evil, of right and wrong, their own ability to discern and make their own decisions is actually a better, wiser path than relying on God to inform you of the right way. And so the woman sees this fruit that it's wonderful looking food, like tasty. And she, and she acknowledges that, wow, it would really be great to have the ability to discern right and wrong on my own, to not have to rely on God to make those kinds of decisions. And so she takes and she eats and she gives to her husband who is there with her and they eat together. And all of a sudden they realize that they're buck naked standing around, right? The image there is this image of childlike innocence. It's the image of, of your small child who is still in that state of just kind of thinking you're cool and relying on what you say, you know? Like, I have four kids, and uh, only the youngest is still pre-puberty, you know? And we're like, we're just enjoying it while it lasts. He still thinks I'm cool, you know, it's pretty fantastic. But that's the image in the garden is the people have this innocence where they're following and trusting the Lord and they think God is cool. And then they're like, no, 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 no. I want to work this out for myself. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I want to acquire the knowledge of good and evil so that I can do it my own way. And they do and they immediately realize something just broke. And then what is amazingly interesting in that passage is the way they respond when God shows up. God shows up and he's like, hey, you know, where are you guys? As if he doesn't know, you know. Hey, where are you? It's like when you walk in the room and your two-year-old is hiding behind a chair and you can totally see him, but, you know, they're like, I I can't, I'm, I'm clearly well hidden right now. You know, it's like kind of one of those scenes. And they're like, we, we heard you and we were afraid. And so we hid. How many of us fear God? Like not in the, not in the appropriate fear God where, where you realize that you have this lion in your midst, but he's good. But the inappropriate fear where you're like, I have to hide from God. There's no way God could accept me. There's no way I can measure up. There's no way God could use me. There's no way God could really love me. There's no way God could really work in my life. That's what they felt. And then the shame. We heard you, so we hid. Because they're overwhelmed with shame. Uh, Researchers say that shame is one of the big drivers in our uh, culture today that keeps us separated from each other and keeps us from living whole lives. We struggle to be vulnerable with each other. Um, By vulnerability, I just mean open and honest in in a good way where we feel like we belong, where we feel like we belong in a community. Researchers say, and I'm primarily quoting from Brene Brown. Uh, She has some TED Talks. You should check it out. It's really good. Uh, Basically, what she says is, our culture struggles with a sense of belonging because shame is a thing that drives an inability to be vulnerable or open or honest with one another, and this breaks down uh, good relationship, good community. She says that the, the, the cure is coping with our own shame. 
And here's the thing. Shame manifests itself differently for men and women. For men, it's like never let them see you weak. Never let them see that you are weak. Stay on your white horse. Be the hero. Be the champion. Never let anyone see that you're actually frail. But for women, it manifests, according to her, it manifests as shame in women is do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. And these drivers where we're trying as men to cover up the fact that we actually feel puny and insignificant. And in women, this sense that uh, I've got to do it all. I've got to do it perfectly. I can never let them see me sweat. I can't ask for help, right? I've got I to gotta just make it work. And these, these shame triggers are driving a disconnectedness between us. Those shame drivers are exactly what you see in Genesis chapter 3. The man, rather than saying, I was weak and I failed, when God says, what's going on? He says, that woman you put here, she gave to me and I ate. He deflects his own weakness and his own failure onto the woman and onto God. That woman you put here. This is exactly what we do as men. I, I'm an expert at blame shifting. You know, And, and, and uh, the woman's response, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. She's revealing her struggle of not doing it all and doing it perfectly. The, Genesis 3 is this amazing window into us and how we respond to our own failures and how we expect God to respond. We expect God to hate us, to reject us, to walk away, to want to have nothing to do with us. And that's why the man wants to say, that woman you put here. Because if it can be God's fault, then God should be okay with me. And then you move on in the story to Genesis chapter 4, and you quickly see a world that has spun out of control. It would be very easy to think that once a little bit of disobedience creeps in, that like it's a very gradual process, you know, like, okay, we have some white lies for a thousand years, and then, you know, a little bit of manipulative deception for another thousand, you know, fast forward a hundred thousand years later, you finally have like the first murder or something. But the lesson in Genesis 4 is that sin's power to corrupt is immediate and pervasive. There's murder within one generation. Yet, yet, in Genesis chapter 4, you're presented with the beginning of a remedy. Because Genesis chapter 4 contrasts Cain's response with, later in the chapter, this dude named Lamech. You see, when Cain is confronted by God for his sin, Cain says, Oh, this is too much for me. Now I'm going to be driven away from your presence, Lord. Right? It's that shame trigger. It's that, it's that, it's that guarantee that God's going to reject me and drive me away. And God says, Huh, I'm going to put a mark of protection on you. God, yes, affirms that there, there was sin, that, that what Cain did was horrible, but he doesn't just look at him and be like, bam, I hate you. Get out of here. You know, you see this response where Cain, when confronted with his sin, he cries out to God and God offers him protection. And then you go later on in the chapter and you're introduced to this, to this guy named Lamech. And Lamech, the story says, it, gets his, it pulls his two wives together and he's like, hey, listen up, wives of Lamech. I killed a guy. But... If Cain was avenged seven times, then I will be avenged 70 times seven. And you read this story and you're like, what on earth is going on? It's just obnoxious. Like, what, 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 is, what is the deal? The thing is, you're being presented with options for confronting sin that every single one of us have. And those options are cry out to God, rely on his mercy, Rely on his grace, pursue God, 
wrestle with God to not be driven from his presence. That's what Cain does. Or pull up your bootstraps, take matters into your own hands, stand firm, and fight. And that is the path to furthering yourself from relationship with God and relationship with people. Chapter 4 ends with this weird statement. In those days, people began to call on the name of the Lord, on the name Yahweh, on the reputation of God. And then, to highlight the magnificence of the progression of the story, you hit chapter 5, which is a genealogy. <laughs> and you're like, woohoo, man, this story is awesome. Adam was the father of, you know, and you're like, wait, wait a second, all of a sudden, so and so was the father of so and so, and he lived so long, and he had other sons and daughters, and all together he lived, what? 969 years? What? This is crazy talk, you know? Time to put the Bible away. We just hit a genealogy. We're done. It's stupid, you know? We get hung up on all the wrong things in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is continuing to show you the remedy to sin and death. Because every single one of the ten entries in Genesis chapter 5 ends with the line, and he died. Except for one. There's one of whom we are told he walked with God. And he was no more. What? So we're being clued in. Walking with God. Walking with God. What what is that? So the problem with Genesis chapter 5 is it shows us that the one who didn't die walked with God. But it says nothing about what walking with God actually is. And then you roll into Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 starts with this crazy scene that nobody's entirely certain what it means other than that it's clear that the world is utterly corrupt. And so God hits a point where he says, all right, I created by bringing order out of the watery chaos. Now I'm going to bring the watery chaos back. I am going to uncreate so that eventually I can recreate. And that's the story of the flood. And, and there's one person that we're told walked with God, and that's Noah. And so God, as you know, tells Noah to build a boat, right? Take his family. But here's the thing. The, the, the major point of the story is that we're given a window into what it actually looks like to walk with God. If you try reading the, the flood story, Genesis 6 through 9, you're, you're probably going to be like, this is way too repetitive. This must be horrible literature because, you know, a, a command is given in too much detail. And then immediately it tells me how Noah went and did that thing. And it repeats the exact same detail. And these people were horrible writers because if they took a, a freshman level writing class, they would realize that this is horrible literature. Right? But here's the thing. The author is very intentional because what the author is showing you is that at its core, at its core, walking with God means hearing God, trusting Him enough to do it. It's as simple as that. Hearing God, trusting Him enough to do it. But golly, aren't there two big problems for us? One is hearing God, (laughs) right? And another is trusting him enough to actually go do it. It's actually very difficult. Simple to understand. Simple concept. Difficult to pull off. Uh, By the time you hit Genesis chapter 9... You've got Adam, or you've got Noah, like planting a vineyard and getting drunk, and weird stuff happens in the tent, and you're like, I don't know exactly what's going on here, you know. But you can at least you can at least see that that the basic point is that it, it the world isn't perfect, you know. That that even the one who walked with God, something weird goes on. 
Something ain't quite right. And then you hit Genesis chapter 10, and you see what we call the table of nations, right? You know, don't read the whole thing. You'll get too bored. Oh, I can't believe I said that on a podcast. The uh, uh, Read and study in uh, great detail Genesis chapter 10, right? But essentially, it's just like, you know, this people group went over here. And this people group went over there. You know, it's a cataloging, essentially, of the nations, where they go and where they are. And if all you do is read Genesis chapter 10, you're you're probably going to think, that's just obnoxious, you know. But here's the point. The trajectory of the story has been the fragmentation of people. And Genesis chapter 10 shows you that fragmentation on a national level. And then you hit Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis chapter 11 is a, is a flashback to before the nations were all fragmented, like you have in chapter 10. And it gives you this somewhat famous story that we refer to as the Tower of Babel. Some people get together, and they're like, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a city with an amazing tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. The thing that you have to understand is when you talk about a name in these cultures, name can mean fame, it can mean reputation. Let's make a reputation for ourselves. Let's get famous. That's what they're saying when they say, let's make a name for ourselves, okay? But it's more than that. Establishing a name in the ancient Near East is how you essentially acquire eternal life. They, they would equate having fame, having a name, having a reputation that outlives themselves. That is how they describe achieving some semblance of an eternal life. Uh, we have a really super cool story uh, uh, from uh, it's it's a Sumerian story. It's from Mesopotamia, uh, about 2,200 BC. Um, so, in other words, there's a story that was actually uh, written before uh, the Bible was written. But it gives us a window into how those cultures viewed the idea of having a name. There was this king. His name was Gilgamesh. Maybe some of you have heard of Gilgamesh from later stories. But Gilgamesh was famous as a king for being the shepherd of his people. And what he's famous for is building this amazing city wall around uh, the city of Unug and his city. And, And the thing is that he had of anyone fame or a reputation in the ancient Near East. He was the guy. He was famous as a caretaking king who cared for his people. And yet, in this story, there's a scene where the king, Gilgamesh, the most famous person, the most renowned person, the person most guaranteed to have eternal life, is standing at his wall that he built that gave him fame. And he is craning his neck over the city wall. And he's looking out and he says... The fate of all people is the same. We all die. And so what he wants to do is go on a quest where he can make a name for himself. It speaks to this inner thing that we all have that no matter what we've achieved, no matter what we've accomplished, no matter how much we've accumulated in possessions or wealth, we always feel like there's something more. And this is what the Babel builders are after. Some scholars think that the tower is what we call a ziggurat, which is essentially a, uh, a temple. This huge pyramid structure where at the very top you have a room that was the house of the deity. And if that's the case, then part of what's going on in Genesis 11 is that they want to build a city with a tower so that they can guarantee the presence of God with them. 
Because if we can guarantee that our God will be in his house, in our midst, then we, we'll have to have success. We'll have to be okay. It's the same way we struggle with trying to figure out the right formulas in our prayers that will guarantee that God will be on my side. God doesn't work that way. And he thwarts their plans. But a super, super interesting thing happens in Genesis chapter 12. (laughs) Genesis chapter 12. God calls this dude, Abraham, you know, at first it's Abram, later he gets referred to as Abraham. But God shows up and he says, hey, go to the land I'll show you. And I'll make you into a great nation. And I'll bless you. And you are to be a blessing. But God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. So the desire to have a great name is apparently, from a biblical perspective, not problematic. The problem is when we think that we can pull it off ourselves, that we can figure out our own path, our own way. In other words, that in Genesis 3 style, we can discern the difference between good and evil, craft our own path out of our own wisdom, and acquire our own fame, well-being, riches, whatever it is. And, And the lesson of Genesis 11 and 12, when you put them together, is... Go after it yourself, and you're, it's not going to work. Let God work in you, and you've got a shot. And this is how God does it. I will bless you. You be a blessing. The core idea from Abraham's call that later gets picked up on a national level is that God pulls people aside to himself and he says, I will be your God. You will be mine. You will be my special possession, my special treasure. You will be that thing that I am going to show off to the world. You know, from, uh, from a Genesis 1 perspective, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, you will be my image bearer. You will be the thing that is spreading my, my rule, my dominion, my goodness around the world. Your job is to soak up my blessing and to turn around and be a blessing to others. You know, your job is to have a couch that you're going to list on Craigslist, and instead, when you see a need, you fill that need. You are blessed because you have the responsibility to turn around and be a blessing to others. Now, fast forward a little bit, a little caveat. Jesus was fully aware of the fact that oftentimes the blessings from God don't really feel like blessings. And this is why he said stuff like, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. You know, right? This famous passage out of Matthew, sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes. It's not really Beatitudes. It's more blessings that God gives that don't always feel like blessings. You know, but think about it. Those are the very things that God uses to draw other people to himself. So God shows up, tells Abram, go to the land I'll show you, be a blessing, I'm going to make your name great, you're to be a blessing to others, this is my plan of how I am going to begin to fix the mess that is recorded in Genesis 1-11. to you got to have Genesis chapter 1 because you need to see that God is capable and that he's good. you got to have 3-11 through Because that describes or explains the chaos in which we live day in and day out. And you got to have chapter 12 and following because that is where God enacts his remedy. And his remedy then and his remedy today, pull people aside to himself, bless them so they can bless others. You should think about that when you're posting on Facebook. 
your call from God is to be a blessing. So when you type in whatever you're typing in on Facebook, you better ask yourself, is this going to bless? Because if anything in you says no, then you're outside of the very thing you were created for. So the beauty of Genesis 12 50, there's 50 chapters in the book, all right? So the beauty of the whole rest of the book is that you get a window into God, <laughs> God providing a remedy, but he's doing it through people. And it may come as a little bit of a surprise to you, but people are rather imperfect. And so Abraham, he, he goes, you know, yay, right? I mean, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, go to the land I'll show you and I'll do all this amazing stuff. And interestingly, the story of Genesis, the author of Genesis, is not at all interested in the decision-making process that Abraham must have gone through in order to undertake the journey. It just says, so Abram went. <laughs> Why? Because the story is about God delivering on the promises. The story is about God enacting his remedy to the mess of Genesis 1 through 11. And again, his remedy is pull someone aside, bless them so they can be a blessing to others. And so Genesis 12, you read on, Abraham goes and he goes into the land and he travels up and down the land that God had given to him, but a famine hits. And so Abraham travels down to Egypt. Now to us, it's like, why, why go to Egypt if there's a famine? Well, the answer is pretty simple. When you're up in Canaan, uh, the, the, the crops grow from rain. Okay? Uh, the, the Mediterranean, the moist air of, in the wind sweeps in off the Mediterranean. As it begins to hit the land, the air rises. As the air rises, it cools. The moisture falls in rain. So the part of the land that Abraham was in, it's, it's say where, for example, modern Jerusalem is, is a very lush land when things are operating normally. The average annual rainfall in Jerusalem is 600 millimeters of rain. It takes 300 millimeters of rain per year to grow your crops without the need for any irrigation. It's a rich, fertile, good land. But if the rain doesn't come... There's famine. You know, this is, this is like before the days of just, well, I'll just go to Jimmy John's if it doesn't rain. Like, who cares, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, they're utterly dependent on their own crops and their own herds. So if it doesn't rain, he's in big trouble. And Abraham's livelihood is as a shepherd. It's as a herdsman. He's what we call a semi-nomadic pastoralist. In other words, he's the kind of dude who's got his flocks and his herds and his workers, and he travels around from place to place, finding the good pasture land, pitching the tents, hanging out in that pasture land. When there's no rain, when you have the beginnings of a famine, he has no place to take his herds. And so you go to Egypt because Egypt is not dependent on rain. In fact, it doesn't rain. In Egypt. Egypt's fertility comes from the fact that prior to the building of the Aswan Dam, so, you know, in Old Testament times, the Nile would flood every year. And it was a gentle inundation. The waters would rise. And then as the waters receded, the people would plant their crops where, as the water was receding. That was how you grew crops in ancient Egypt. So, if there's a total famine up in Canaan, no rain, you can go down to Egypt because if the Nile had its annual flood, then you're good to go. And on those years where, for whatever reason, the Nile didn't flood or it, or it flood not as well, then there'd be famine in Egypt and you, you could go up, hopefully, to Canaan where, there, where it had rained, right? So they kind of became dependent on each other. But here's the thing. Abraham, he's like, all right, I'm going to Egypt, because there's famine up here. And as he's approaching Egypt, he looks at his wife and he says, Hey, 
got a plan. We all know you're totally hot. And what's going to happen is Pharaoh's officials, they're going to check you out and they're going to be like, oh, we need to tell Pharaoh about her. And Pharaoh's going to want to take you as his own wife. So tell him you're my sister. Right? Smart guy. Yeah, half of you are like chuckling and half of you are like, what? (laughs) What? Now here's the thing. The story, the story in Genesis 12, it describes Abraham, you know, concocting this plan. Okay? And they go down and it happens. Pharaoh takes Sarah as as a wife. And so now Sarah is over, is over in Pharaoh's household. And like all of a sudden, Pharaoh's household starts getting like, like bad times start to happen. You know, crazy stuff. Where eventually Pharaoh's like, what on earth is going on? Ever since Sarah showed up, things have tanked. What is the deal? Tell me what's going on. Right? And then they find out, oh, well, actually, I'm married to Abraham. And so, and so Pharaoh, like, kicks Sarah out, okay, without ever having relations with her. And not only that, he sends Abram away with riches, with goods. He's like, hey, 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 here, t- take her back and take a whole bunch of crap with you. You know, herds, flocks, wealth, right? And, and in other words, he, 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 Pharaoh pays off Abram, and Abram goes his own way. And at that point, the story is silent on the matter. What? So th- think about it. What, what does that mean? God, God sent Abram out, not only with his wife, but with wealth. You look at it and you're like, man, that really worked. <laughs> hey, honey. <laughs> you're pretty good looking. You know, right? And, but, but think about that. You, we read the story and we're like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. God, God doesn't rebuke him. Maybe it's okay to call your wife your sister. I mean, technically she was uh, half-sister, you know, seriously. And, and so, like, it's true. It's true. And you read this story and you're like, I don't know what's going on. But it's part of the story. So here's the thing. As I said before, Abram was a semi-nomadic pastoralist. That's lingo for the dude was a shepherd, but he was wealthy. He had lots of flocks and workers and, and herds. And so he's traveling around. We know from stuff outside the Bible, from texts and archaeology outside the Bible, that there was always in this time period tension between city dwellers and these nomadists who were traveling around, they were often in conflict with each other to the point of taking up arms against each other because the herds are eating up our good crops and these nomadists, these, these pastoralists, they have workers. In other words, they have a force of people who can take up arms. This is the political dynamic that's going on in the background when you see Abram traveling from Canaan down to Egypt. He's got to go down there because he's got to find food and water and, and grazing area for his, his herds, his flocks. But he knows that he's going to have tension with the city dwellers. And so he knows that, this, that Pharaoh is going to want to relieve that tension by forming a political alliance, which you do by marriage. Abram knows all of this. That's why he concocts the plan. Now, God sends him off better than he came. Is the point of the story that God approves of you calling your... Your wife, your sister, so you can get wealthy? Uh Uh-uh. No, the point of the story is that God is dealing with people. The point of the story is that God scrapes from the bottom of the barrel so that he can take someone and bless them so that they can be a blessing to others. 
In other words, Abram is right off the heels of Genesis 11. You cannot look at Abram and think, oh, God searched around for someone of great upright and moral character and chose them. And so everything that Abram does is going to make sense. No, 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 no. The point of the story is that God pulls us out even when we're not looking for him. God pulls us out when we're unrefined. This is why it's such a ridiculous tragedy when the church demands that non-believers act like Christians before they can accept Christ. That is ridiculous. God pulls us out of the depths of our own depravity and begins to work in us. And that's you see in Genesis 12, and that's part of the story, and that's part of God's character that we have to get. And the story goes on and on, and, and you know, it would be amazing to stand up here and go into detail for each book, but you can tell, like, I've been talking for a while, and we made it to Genesis 12. It's a rich story. When you run into stuff that doesn't quite make sense, you've got to keep reading. You've got to keep acquiring the story. You've got to keep wrestling with it. But the point is, we see a God who is willing to pull us out wherever we are and begin to bless us so that we can be a blessing. And his desire is that we walk with him. Uh, Jesus said this. I'm going to read from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you're hosed, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. He keeps saying, remain in me, remain in my love, remain in me. What is he talking about? Here's what he says. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Is he demanding some sort of perfection that even Abram didn't know how to keep? No, what he's saying is, we go back to what we said earlier. Hear God and do what he says. Follow the promptings of the Spirit as best we understand them. Get to know God's story. Why am I harping so much on the story? Because we look at the little incidents, the little events in our lives, and we go, Historionicus, the Latin name of the wild wood duck is Historionicus. That's just crazy. When actually, maybe, God is working something in our lives that if we knew more of the story, we would be like, oh, that is so cool. My grandmother passed away not too long ago, uh, but the last few years of her life, she, um, she had memory loss. Memory loss is essentially the equivalent of losing your identity. We have a church today that is full of people claiming to be Christians who actually have no identity because they have no memory. Because they don't know the story of God. We, we you know, as pastors or whatever you want to call them, religious leaders, Christian leaders, whatever... 
we stand up and we say things like, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And what we mean is, it's not about you doing all the right stuff so that you can earn God's favor. It's about having a relationship with God. But think about it. Think of someone you know, or, or think of the last time someone said, tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Do you say, oh, well, I am kind. I am gracious. <laughs> I am sovereign. Uh, I am light. What, what kind of stupid way to tell somebody who you are would that be? <laughs> but that's what we do with God. Oh, God is gracious. Let's sing about it. That's wonderful, but how is he gracious? Give me a story. When we tell each other about ourselves, when we try and get to know someone, you know, when you're college age and you're falling in love with that girl and you're on the phone until 4 o'clock in the morning and you feel like you just got on the phone 12 minutes ago, you're telling your stories because that's how you get to know each other. Uh, a sociologist recently, this was about 10 years ago, a sociologist um, who, who, as far as I know, is not a believer, just studying sociology, said the problem in the Western church as it's practiced today is quite easy. It's easy to name. They've lost the ability to tell their foundational story in a way that speaks to the times. We individually, have lost the ability to tell the story of God. And the result is that we can't make sense of our own story. We can't plug our own story into the story of God. We can't bring God's story to bear on current events or on what's going on in our lives or in our communities. And we end up to the world sounding like a bunch of cranky, clanging cymbals who are too busy hating each other to be marked by anything that could even remotely be called love. And yet, love is the very characteristic that God said would draw the world to him. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would... uh, Work in us that you would, well, I hate to say it, but inspire us to do the hard work of actually learning your story. I wish there was an easy way, but there isn't. I ask that you would give us this amazing childlike faith that, it, that desires to seek you out. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to, to be continually aware of the fact that you have blessed us with the responsibility of being a blessing to others. May our interactions with others, may our interactions with our community, with our world, with our Facebook posts, be marked as a people who understands that we are called to bless. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. We're a little behind on time, so Eric, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to answer each one of these questions. Okay. All right. The first one is probably the most important one that I got. All right. Which is, is there any possibility the earth is flat? (laughs) (laughs) I I can't answer that in 30 seconds or less. Google it. Yeah. Maybe. There we go. All right. So, I assumed that was a joke, by the way. I didn't. Uh, I assumed I it was too, but if okay. it's not, I, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. Right. We, can, we can explain things. <laughs> Here we go. If I want to understand the cultural context of any scripture, how can I learn without having to learn five different languages? Yeah, super great question. So there are some resources that make it a little bit easier. Um, uh, by resources, I mean books. But I have to, I have to be honest and say that this is an area where scholars have not done a good job. Um, uh, What I mean by that is 
there's tons of really, really rich background information that scholars have access to that is still locked up in scholarly journals. So it's just now kind of starting to make its way out on a popular level. So the two things that I would recommend, one is for Mosaic in particular, you're blessed to have some people like Bill uh, who've, who've been having to learn some of this stuff, and so harass him. That would be thing number one. Uh, pressure's on. Um, uh, the other thing is we're trying really hard at the seminary to do podcasts and blogs um, uh, other things in the works down the road, but for right now, the blog and the podcast are up and running. And um, honestly, that's what we do: is we try we try and talk about really cool, interesting stuff with a lot of cultural background com- coming into play. Um, but it, unfortunately, it, it's not. Uh, there's no like simple uh, thing yet. We're working on it. One of my huge burdens, and I, and I would say calls from God, is to bridge the gap between the scholarly world uh, and the church with this material, because it's exciting and helpful. Now, with that, like, can anyone take classes at Pillar, or do you have to have a bachelor's degree to do that? Can people audit it? Um, <laughs> How does that work? No, uh, the, the, the seminary is designed yeah. for people who are in ministry vocationally. Nice. Uh, so, um, I'm sorry to say, uh, probably none of you could take a class at the pillar. Um, but we, we're trying to do other things. It just, we have to build one piece at a time. We're only two and a half years old. So we're getting the four passers part built out real nicely. Uh, you know, eventually down the road, I think there'll be more resources for more people, but right now that's limited to the blog and the podcast and a you know, Tuesday morning class that I do that's designed for not pastors. So if you feel like driving up to Omaha once a week to hang out, you know. But. All right. Well, we got another sciencey one. Uh, can someone believe the universe is 13 billion years old and still believe in a literal Adam and Eve? How would that work? It's uh, a good question. Um, uh, I'm a Bible scholar, not a scientist. Um, so I don't, I don't really, I can't speak at all to the science side of 13 billion years. Um, I can only speak to the Bible side. Uh, there are some people who would say, no, that's, that's absolutely impossible because uh, Adam and Eve... Um, were the, were the uh, first people ever made, and so an evolutionary process that eventually leads to something that you would call human is sort of outside the bounds of how the Bible describes stuff. There are other people who say, uh, especially those who take a more functional view of creation, what I mean by that is that uh, being endowed with a purpose or a destiny or a function is is more the creation thing. And so... It doesn't matter if there were things we would call human prior to Adam and Eve. God invests that function of divine uh, image of God thing on Adam and Eve, and therefore they're the first people, but it doesn't matter how many humanoids there were prior to that. That's how some people explain it. And there are some people who go the route of you shouldn't believe in a literal, actual Adam and Eve because what you're dealing with in that story is an analogy for the human condition. So give up trying to identify the one person Adam and the one person Eve and instead see yourselves in the story. Those are the three main approaches. Cool. I'm not declaring an opinion. (laughs) Uh, The band could come up. One last question for you is... Um, being an Old Testament scholar, has that changed the way that you pray? Um, if so, how? Um, that's a good question. Whew, man, I'd like to meet whoever asked that one. Um, maybe not change the way, but lent a depth that I wouldn't trade away for anything. Just put it that way. You know, there, there's something fun. I don't, I don't talk about it much because the last thing I want to do is present this image that you have to be a, a Bible scholar to 
<laughs> have a life of faith, which is just total crap. Um, but if I'm being personal, there's something about being able to work through the Psalms in Hebrew in your prayer life that I, I, wouldn't, I would not give up that experience for anything. And um, so it hasn't so much changed the way I pray, but it has brought a, uh, a depth of expression that is pretty fantastic. Is there a version of our foundational story that can be reduced to an elevator conversation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as long as you realize that it's a reduction. Um, right? I mean, that's kind of what I tried to do today. Uh, God is good. He creates a good world. Uh, he created a nest for us, right? One, one guy I know, he describes it as we pooped in the nest, right? So he creates this amazing nest. We pooped in it, which broke the world. He has worked really hard to redeem us to himself. Uh, of course, that redemptive, redemptive plan culminates in Jesus. And he invites us to be blessed by him so we can be a blessing to others. And in the end, he will make all things right. That's the elevator pitch. Nice. So this question is probably uh, appropriate based on that response. A skeptic's question to that would be then, if God is all-knowing, why would God create humans just to have to uncreate them and start over? Because um, he's good. Because he's good. What, what, what kind of God would he be if he was unwilling to share his goodness? Oh, those people, they're going to... They're going to screw things up. They're going to mess up my world, so I'm not going to give it to them. What kind of crappy God would that be? He's good. And he wants to share his goodness with you. And he's willing, pardon my expression, to put up with a whole lot of so that he can be good to you. Passionate about that one, huh? I am a little bit. (laughs) Is there a reason you're passionate about that one? Just my own curiosity. Uh, I think because I didn't always believe he was good. And for some reason, I stuck with him. And it was at the lowest point in depression where something broke, and all of a sudden, I believed he was good. And it, it really affects things when you can actually believe that God is good. Nice. All right. Um, let's switch it up a bit here. It says, was God visible tangibly to the patriarchs and first humans? Slash, how did Cain and Abel get the idea to bring God's sacrifices? Oh, okay. So patriarchs usually were talking like Abraham and after. So Cain and Abel would be a different situation. Uh, Abraham and after, generally you have messengers. Uh, you know, like you might use the word prophet. Um, a prophet is nothing more than a messenger on behalf of a deity, you know. So some, some, and and this, Israel wasn't the only one who had prophets in the ancient world, you know. So um, uh, it's just I, I shouldn't go there. I'm going to just do more harm than good, confusing you. So just stick with God would uh, give his uh, give his message to a messenger, call him a prophet, and they would deliver the message. So it's possible because Abraham at some point is called a prophet that God just somehow spoke to him directly. Exactly how, we don't know. The text doesn't record it. Actually, the text usually doesn't record how they got the messages. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions like Joseph and dreams. Um, Cain and Abel, like, I, I don't know. You're presented with this image where they seem to be talking directly with God. Um, But it's a super great question that Scripture is not as clear on as you would like. That's the the actual answer. Scripture is not as clear as you would like. Next one is, you work in a field where people come to drastically different conclusions when presented the same information. Hmm. How do scholars handle dis- disagreement in a healthy way? Oh, in a healthy way? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is pretty appropriate to right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in a healthy way. Um, uh, look, I mean, look, scholars are people, so it's not always healthy. Um, there's lots of amazing stories of so being... give us the healthy way. That's uh, yeah, <laughs> well, the unhealthy ones are more fun. Being, 
watching two old guys yell at each other at a conference. It's pretty fun. Anyway, um, no, look, scholars, you know, it's a, it's a different field. So we do conferences. Um, so, like, when you give an academic paper at a conference, you know that there's going to be a Q&A afterwards, which means the people who are the best people on the planet at what you're giving a paper on have the opportunity to tear, tear you apart. And that's the joy of giving a paper at an academic <laughs> conference. Um, but, uh, um, but the normal mode of scholarly discourse is to publish in journals. And then, you know, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that. My take on it is this. That, that's the normal way. We do it in writing. Um, it used to be that uh, people were really cranky at each other. So if you read the literature 50, 60 years ago, it's, it, it can be really abrasive at times. Now I would say with, with younger scholars, and by the way, I am a young scholar, okay? So when you're talking scholars, like the age range is different than normal careers, you know? Uh, uh, so... Um, Anyway, the, the people my age and younger, uh, for whatever reason, are very congenial in their uh, discourse. We have an ability to talk about ideas without um, becoming so emotionally involved in those ideas that it erupts into real, real negative stuff. So I guess that was a long-winded way of saying you have to develop an ability to talk about ideas without your identity or emotions being tied to every single idea that you're going to discuss. That's what we do. <laughs> I'm smiling at my wife because she's a, a therapist, a counselor, and I, I have an ability to so emotionally detach myself that I don't know what's going on with my emotions, which is comical to her because she's... <laughs> She's smart with emotions. I'm emotion. She'll say, so how do you feel? And I'm like, uh, let me think about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> so anyway. That's awesome. It can veer to unhealthy is what I'm trying to say. Okay, we got our last question here. It says, as someone who spends a lot of time with church leaders, where do you see the church missing their calling to be a blessing? Um, uh, um, well, it's basically what I talked about today. I think uh, you are blessed at Mosaic to have the exception. Uh, most church leaders do not know the story any better than you do. Uh, we, sit, we sit in uh, a classroom where uh, pastors, right? Pastors reading Genesis 12, the thing I just read from. And then we'll say, so what's going on? And the response in the room will be, okay? Our church leaders don't know the story. That, is, uh, that, is, that in my opinion, has crippled all of the, all of the other things, like the, um, the ability to be a blessing, um, you know, and and lest, lest, lest I sound just like some schmo who's all scholarly and thinks everyone should be a scholar, uh, in my opinion, the real fault is with the scholars. And here's what I mean by that. Um, pardon me for being technical for a second, okay? We developed seminary programs in the United States in the 1800s. In the 1800s, the, our culture knew the, knew the Bible. They knew it inside and out. They knew the stories. So when you develop a seminary curriculum, the first thing you do is start talking about theology, systematic theology, you know, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Spirit, do, all that doctrine stuff, okay? Why? Because the average person coming into seminary already knew Scripture and therefore could have the conversation. What happened is with seminaries... We kept that doctrine or, the, or that theology as the main thing. But our biblical literacy has just gone down and down and down and down over the last 150 years to the point 
where the average person who comes into seminary, whether they're in ministry or not, does not know the basic storyline at all. Maybe they know a little bit about Samson. Maybe they know a little bit about David. But could they put those stories together? Could they tell how you got from one to the other? Could they tell you what's going on in the book of Judges at the time of Samson? Could they tell you what's going on in the world at the time of the book of Judges? Could they tell you how the period of the Judges characterized? All those kinds of things that the Bible assumes people know. They don't know. But they're learning theology. And so what you've got is a situation where we're training our church leaders if I can use a golf analogy, we're handing them a golf club and saying, go ahead and hit a high draw. They haven't even learned how to swing the thing in the first place. That's the scholar's fault. And the other thing that scholars have done is we have so much amazing, great information that is locked away in scholarly journals because the average scholar doesn't actually care about the average person having a clue what they do. And part of my journey is sitting at St. Andrews, Scotland, at a conference, Genesis and Christian Theology. Fifty of the world's best Genesis scholars in a room. And uh, I'm looking out the window, um, and and I'm watching people walk by. We're across the street from St. Andrews Golf Course. I'm watching the golfers cross the little bridge on number 18, snapping their pictures and all that kind of stuff. And all I can think is that everything that we're doing in this room is having no effect on anyone outside of this room. And that, that was the burden for me. There's so much great stuff. Um, so we've launched a seminary where we try and train people like Bill. Um, we just got the blogging and the podcasting underway in September. We're working down the road towards developing more resources There is so much amazing, great stuff that brings the Bible to life, that brings God's story to life and makes it sensible in a way where we're actually telling the foundational story of our faith in a way that brings it into conversation with our world, makes it exciting, makes our faith exciting. That's, I think that's why I was put on this planet. Amazing. Can we give Eric a huge mosaic? Thank you, Ryan. Applause.